to use your word this morning to keep us firm in that grace. For we ask it in your own name. Amen. Do please sit and turn to Colossians. You may need to, uh, uh, to put it beside you, actually, uh, for a moment. Uh, a few weeks ago, Diana asked uh, for a response at uh, the end of a sermon. I'm going to ask for a response at the beginning of the sermon. Um, I would like you to stand, please. So you may need to put your Bibles up to one side. If you think of yourself as just immature... Okay? Thank you. I didn't say sit. I didn't say sit. Um, uh, and would you please uh, now stand if you reckon you're, well, you're, you're mature. No, you can stay standing if you were the first lot as well. Okay, everyone can sit now. Because now, now, I'm, now I'm going to talk um, uh, to the rest of you. Which, for those downstairs, is all the gallery, because nearly all of them stayed sitting. I'm not quite sure what that says about the gallery, about gallery life, but there we are. Because those of you who stayed sitting offer us a shape for considering uh, the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two this morning. Of course, I know full well that if you say uh, immature or mature in a certain way, uh, then it's bound to be that very few stand up. And, of course, St. Paul isn't very interested in those who are already mature, but he is interested in the direction of travel, away from or towards maturity, and we're all taking that journey. Nonetheless, it's worth identifying that still the largest majority, by a long way, uh, amongst us, lay between immature and mature. Well, we're close enough to the start of the Colossians series just to repeat some basics. Uh, Paul is in prison quite possibly in Ephesus, in Turkey, and writing to this church of new Christians. It was Epaphras, his friend, who's established this church. And Epaphras has now come uh, from Colossae, which is about 100 miles... from uh, uh, Colossae, which is about 100 miles inland from the coast, to Ephesus, we think, uh, and brought to Paul in prison news of what this new church is up to. And this is the letter that Paul writes by way of response to the news from Epaphras. It's a very young church, and today, towards the end of our reading, we get hints uh, that they are threatened by alternative voices. And later on in the letter, we're going to hear that some of those voices have a a Jewish tone to them. Now, it's it's normal enough in New Testament letters that there's, there's some baddies in the background. And we may think that we have got no such voices to deal with. Now, later on in this, I'm going to suggest actually that that's not true. We have got very loud voices uh, to deal with. And we face a danger every bit as alarming as what was facing Colossae. But we do, first of all, I think, need to explain two difficult things in our reading. And I I hope I'm finding the the same difficult things that you may have recognised as Peter was reading earlier. Two factors. Suffering and mystery. Well, at the beginning of our reading, Paul is a servant of the church in uh, verse 24. Uh, And it is a church that probably supposed 
in some way, that uh, a test of a religion's truthfulness was success in life. Certainly, Paul has to begin our reading today by defending the place of suffering. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. It's not a brilliant translation. It might perhaps say, now I rejoice in, in the suffering for you of me. It's his own suffering. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, anyone who's been a Christian for a while will think that's very odd. What could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? There's no suggestion here at all that uh, there are sufferings on Paul's part that count towards our salvation. Somehow that they began with Christ, but they're carrying on in Christ's servants. In fact, the word afflictions is never used of Christ's suffering on the cross. As good an opportunity as any then for a preacher to remind a congregation that the work of Jesus upon the cross to take our sins upon him and to rise to put his life within us, this is a once-for-all, complete and unrepeatable work. We are saved as we meet this morning, utterly. There is no more work to be done. But the Jews believed that the age of the Messiah, the Anointed One, would be accompanied by what they called the messianic woes, the painful experience of God's chosen people before the final day. So Paul here is speaking of those painful experiences. Let me paraphrase what he's saying. The sufferings I undergo, not least being in prison, do not count against the truth of the gospel. Rather, they validate the claim that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And in my own flesh, I am filling up the suffering of God's people. I myself am doing that for the very sake of God's people who might otherwise have further suffering. This is my service to the church in which I am commissioned by God to bring the word of God in fullness. It's not a a suffering that saves us, For Paul, it was simply part of the experience that God's people would know in the time of the Messiah. So for him, though there may have been a church saying, oh, well, you're suffering. Can't be a good, decent religion if if it brings suffering. He's saying, no, because because there is suffering, you can have confidence that this is the age of the Messiah. And then our second, second factor that I think needs explaining is this idea of mystery. It's there in verse 26, the mystery that's been kept hidden. Uh, Verse 27, to them God's chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. It's there at the beginning of chapter 2. My purpose is they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God. This is not a mystery that has remained a mystery. Uh, What Paul means when he uses this term, and he uses it a lot in his letters, is the, 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 the aha that we, living in this period, now understand. We now understand that all this Old Testament was building up to this point. 
They had a, a dim shadow sense in that Old Testament of what was going on. They didn't grasp it fully. But we've had the aha moment as Jesus has been revealed. We've got, ah, yes, that's where it was all heading. This is not something that remains a mystery then. But rather it is a, a secret that has been discovered, that has been opened up now in our own time. It's not merely that there is this amazing story of Jesus the Messiah, his cross, resurrection and ascension. And I, Paul, am telling you that story. Rather, the mystery is that those to whom I am telling the story themselves become part of the story. It's what used to be hidden but is now revealed. The Gentiles, the peoples of the earth, are hearing the news that Jesus is Lord, and that was always part of the plan itself. The cross, the resurrection, the ascension, yes, those are part of the story. But so is the Pentecost outpouring of the story to those who are now living in the fulfillment of God's plan to save the nations. So neither my sufferings or labor or struggle count against the truth of the good news. I throw myself into it, says Paul, because it is my commission from God and because there is a work of maturing to do. So, verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Admonishing doesn't mean ticking off, it means setting straight, correcting false ideas. so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. It means mature, complete. Chapter 2 and verse 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. Paul knows that his job is to take churches like Colossae and to move them along and to move them he is prepared to undergo suffering and labor and struggle so that they get it, that they themselves are what God was aiming at. The good news is not merely news about Jesus, wonderful as that may be. The good news is that God has always sought a people for himself, and now, in Christ, he has reached out and claimed the peoples of the world and proclaimed Christ to them. Well, I think those two things, the suffering and the mystery, needed explanation. But all that we've done, really, is clear up a couple of potential puzzles that might trip us up when we read Colossians. They don't help us, I don't think, much, to get into the text and say, well, how's, this going, how's my week going to be different because I've been in Colossians on Sunday? So I want to go back. To my claim that actually we are under a threat just as great as the one that faced the the Colossians. And we begin by asking about this common experience. You get it in most of the letters, that there are rival voices, alternative voices, all looking to distract the new Christians. And I suspect, I suspect, you can tell me if I'm wrong afterwards, that this is how we think of it. That there is a kind of normal culture in Ephesus or Colossae or wherever it may be. And then the Christian faith is proclaimed. But somewhere else, ooh, another proclamation is being made of a different point of view. 
But actually, we've got no reason to suppose it is like that. It's just as likely that the Christian faith announced to that culture, the background of the culture, provoked a response from the culture itself so that it's the culture that has the fine-sounding arguments, as we heard in our reading and as Ian echoed in our prayers. And that matters for us because we think, again, I suspect, well, it's all very well, Paul, talking about these alternative voices, but there aren't any today. There are other faiths, sure, and there's a kind of unspiritual, spiritual, uh, unspiritual cultural background, but these kind of rival voices with fine-sounding arguments, no, that doesn't happen. But that unspiritual cultural background is the voice, the rival voice, that we spend most of our lives listening to. It's the voice of argument, rational argument in the pub. It's the radio, the paper, the TV, the school, the factory, the college, the university, the shops, all of which think that the idea of God is at best irrelevant and at worst absurd. And faced with that culture, Christians over the years have tried to make links and, uh, and have gone in for what C.S. Lewis called Christianity and. Christianity and social justice. Christianity and environmentalism. Christianity and family values. In the face of which, C.S. Lewis wanted to insist on mere Christianity. And that is so precisely what St. Paul is doing here. What is the great secret of the Christian life? What is the mystery to it all? Well, chapter 1 and verse 27 tell us. It is Christ. It is not an ism. It is not a teaching. It is not a discipline or an exercise. But it is Christ. Christ in you not meaning here that he's within each one of us, though he is, it's not what Paul's talking about here, but in, among the Gentiles, the nations of the world, and in them so as to be the sustaining hope of glory in the face of present suffering. Ian led us in prayer just about and touched on a few sufferings that go on in our world but we, we scarcely need help, do we, to know the sufferings of the Christian church? Colin Crouch was telling me before the service that uh, at the Sunday service on Radio 4 this morning, there was a, a Syrian patriarch whose own son had been blown up uh, in Syria in a car by killers who didn't even know who was in the car. They'd just been given the number of the car to blow up. And yet... The Syrian church in the camps is growing because people cannot wait to become Christians and to follow this Jesus. The blood of the martyrs is always the seed of the church. And so Paul understands that the suffering of the church is not an irrelevance to be embarrassed about but it is actually our pride that this is the age of the Messiah. Christ is in the nations of the world so as to be the sustaining hope of glory in the face of suffering. 
In the same way in chapter 2, what is the mystery of Christ in verse 2? The mystery of God, namely Christ. Christ is himself the mystery. So let me suggest how I think this kind of bites for us, where the point of traction is in our lives. I suspect that if we're honest, for many of us, the Christian faith, however important it is, or we think it should be, is in practice a thing apart. We have normal life, and then faced with the challenges of normal life, the colleague who is a pain, the endless box ticking that frustrates the job we thought we were in for, the family that seems less grateful or communicative than they might be, faced with all these normal practical challenges, we walk from our normal life over to the river of the Christian faith with our bucket and we pull up a bucket load of support. Might be prayer, might be Bible reading, or talking to friends. But in some ways, we we go and connect with the spiritual from our base in the normal. And what I want to suggest is that that is precisely what Paul is telling us not to do. Paul wants them loving each other, verse 2 of chapter 2, in order to possess the full riches of complete understanding. Paul wants us to live in Christ as the normal, because the normal is, again, verse 2, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul understands that perfection is in Christ. And that word perfection doesn't mean the absence of all sin, but as I said earlier, just completion, maturity, to be perfect in Christ is to be someone for whom it is Christ that has become normal, and what other people call normal is now a distraction. You can be perfect in Christ at 18, though it may be rare. You can still have a long way to go at 80. Well, let me illustrate that. Look at the language again of suffering uh, in 29, 129, or struggle and labor at the turn of the chapters. Our world does not mind religion, so long as it can keep things in a box, uh, so long as it's in place. The Chancellor uh, in the budget gave the church £20 million because the church is doing its approved job of commemorating the First World War. Now we know what we're for. But that there should be suffering for what we believe that the church of God across the globe should have its sons blown up. That's not part of what the Chancellor wants to pay for, understandably. That we might struggle and labor, that is simply ridiculous in the world in which we live. It's not normal. So we read it, and the danger is we think it was special to Paul. But what if we were in Christ as normal, would we then not say that actually our lives were radical enough that suffering was normal for us too? What could that kind of maturity look like for us? Well, I want to outline two factors as we finish. Firstly, there's a what to it. More closely than elsewhere, here, Paul opens up the idea of the mere Christ in verse 2 of chapter 2. 
to say that we learn this Christ in whom is complete understanding as we're united in love and encouraged in heart. Now, heart, you probably will have heard this, I say it often enough, it's not the kind of Valentine emotion, uh, mushy heart. The heart in the New Testament is simply the center of everything. The will, we might say, or mind and heart together. As Paul directs them to Jesus, and that's what Colossians has been about, he's encouraging them in heart. Then as they are knit together in love of one another, they grow towards a maturity that means understanding Christ himself. And so based on the what of maturity, we might ask whether each one of us trains our mind and our heart to change track so that Christ becomes the normal and this world that we live in is simply eccentric. Do we spend enough time with other believers to be, as Paul says, united with them? Not meaning do you like them, but does your conversation build on this sense that it is your faith in Christ that is normal and common, not your family, your children, your work, your hobbies, whatever it may be? We must not, uh, we must not underestimate the volume of the voices raised to say every single minute of the day that this world is normal and there is no hope of glory. It takes huge effort to resist those voices. Remember, you are not an observer on the sidelines. Christ has made us, the Gentiles, part of the story. But then there is also a how to this maturity. We must not forget the the part that Paul himself is playing as as we read these verses. He did not expect that the Holy Spirit would, on his own, bring each believer to maturity. Paul labored for them. Who labors for you? And for whom do you labor? I wonder whether when we didn't stand at the beginning of the the sermon, I wonder whether that tells us that the answer to the how is more of a problem than the what. Is there an individual or a group of Christians for whose maturity you are laboring? And please don't say, "Well, well, who am I to be in that situation? There's someone who needs your labor, who's less far on in the Christian faith than you are? Why should we suppose that it's a task only for Paul and not for every single member of the body of Christ? Why should we assume that it is merely the labor of a vicar on a Sunday or perhaps throw in a group during the week? It struck me that it is simply bizarre to suppose that with the clamor of the normal world so strong, mad to suppose that an hour on a Sunday or in the week might be enough. Or to look at the other end of the process. Who is there who is looking to present you perfect, complete, mature in Christ? Well, yes, I am, but who else? Wouldn't it be more natural to suppose that if the process involves the mighty labor towards maturity of Paul, all of us should be in that process, being matured by another and maturing others ourselves. And if that then does indeed create an alarmed, oh, but I couldn't possibly, 
It's not for me. Then our task is to turn it round and pay attention to Paul and make it very possible indeed. And I think that's something for us who lead to consider, and we are considering it. How can we help one another be more involved in maturing one another? So, another hopelessly impractical talk. Because it's another enormously, hopelessly impractical passage. Because what Paul cares about is precisely that we should stop our ears against the ceaseless clamour of the world that we should be normal. That we should care about the normal things. In order to turn our attention and to labour fiercely with all our strength, even if it brings us to suffering, to see ourselves and our neighbours maturing in Christ and nothing else. No Christianity and my favourite hobby horse. Just mere. Mere Christianity. Mere Christ. Mere Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we have walked with our bucket to the stream that is Christ. And for some of us, it's felt like a long walk. Our bucket has got smaller, perhaps sprung a leak. And the gap between the world of normal and the world of Jesus Christ has seemed enormous. We have stumbled in faith, fallen into sin. And if it be true, what Paul says here, then Christ is in truth not a river we walk to, but the river we swim in. By your Spirit, give us that grace and strength to swim in the water of Christ, to have Christ as our normal Defend us against the voices, so many of them, so loud, so much of the time, that tell us we are odd. And let us stand and swim. Only in Christ we pray. Amen.